Hello, welcome back to What Happened to Syria, a podcast about the country, the people, and their impact on the wider world since 2011. It was once thought that the internet and social media would lead to an information age, where facts and figures could travel across the world at the speed of wireless data. But the information age has also seen an epidemic of misinformation and disinformation. The two might sound synonymous, but they're not. Misinformation is the result of innocent error. Disinformation comes about through deliberate deception. Propaganda has been utilized by states to spread disinformation for thousands of years. Today, governments use state-owned TV channels and social media bots to spread their preferred narratives. This disinformation ecosystem has led to the conflict in Syria becoming one of the most heavily propagandized issues in the world. Pro-regime, pro-opposition, pro-SDF, and even pro-jihadist propaganda can be found circulating around the internet, offering their own spin on what's taken place in Syria since 2011. Let's go ahead and dispel some myths. Today, we're joined by Dr. Idris Ahmad, a lecturer in journalism and longtime Syria watcher, to talk about myths, misconceptions, and outright fabrications. Welcome back to What Happened to Syria. Today, we're looking at the people who have looked at Syria. Today, I'm joined by uh, Mr. Idris Ahmad, lecturer in journalism. How are you doing, sir? Doing very well, thank you. I have no idea if I said your title right or not. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, I think it's, it's, it's fine. Um, I just teach journalism here at the University of Sterling, and, uh, and I um, am a, an editor at New Lines magazine. How did you get started in uh, covering Syria, specifically the media coverage of it? Well, uh, media has been the focus of my um, my academic work for quite some time. I, I did a sociology degree. My PhD was in sociology, and which again was uh, focusing a lot on how media narratives are shaped and reporting on con- of conflicts in particular. And um, so when the Arab Spring started... Um, Initially, it was a very straightforward story. It was all good that there were these uprisings against um, these uh, very obviously repressive and hated dictatorships, and uh, everybody was cheering. And but then the counter-revolution started, and suddenly, not only that, people started getting confused, but all these counter-narratives started emerging, and they started confusing people. And then it 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 appeared that the counter-narratives were just not a matter of simple confusion, but uh, there was actually a way, um, a, a kind of, a, there was a method to all the madness, and there was a, um, planning behind it, coordination behind it, and so ever since then, fighting disinformation around Syria has become an all-time and all-consuming kind of a preoccupation. So, so what has been the role of uh, propaganda or information operations in the context of Syria since 2011? Usually propaganda works in two ways. that It either inspires people to do something um, or it kind of incites them to do something. Or the other function of propaganda is to prevent action, to thwart action. And in the case of Syria, it was a very straightforward case of a war on civilians, and uh, what propaganda achieved is to muddle the terms. So first, even the, the the description that is used for it, people refer to it very often as the as the civil war. A civil war kind of suggests um, a sort of parity between different parties, and which never existed in Syria. You had one side which had the air force and artillery and uh, armor and uh, and a state backed by two states, which are uh, providing it all the uh, arms and equipment that it needed. And on the other hand, you had uh, the mass of people, and they had the moral support of the outside world, but it never really materialized it into anything meaningful. People often cite, but then they receive 
this amount of money worth of uh, support, but that support came mostly in forms of non-lethal support, and no game-changing weapon was introduced at any time. Uh, the most that the Syrian rebels received were tow anti-tank missiles, but the tanks weren't the main thing which were um, uh, in Assad's arsenal. Their war on civilians was carried was carried out mainly from air, and there was no protection from that. So the propaganda managed to muddle these terms. It managed to create this impression that this is some kind of an equal battle, or that it's a battle between, on one hand, the regime, and on the other hand, uh, some jihadists or Islamists, which certainly were part of the opposition, but they were not the dominant part, and they only became a dominant part after the... Um, from a lack of support, the nationalist or the more secular opposition was completely wiped out. Overall, what, what impact has propaganda had on public opinion regarding Syria? You mentioned how people call it a civil war, but you kind of, you, you, you seem to disagree with that label. Yes, the uh, main effect that uh, it all achieved is it, it created the impression of a dirty war. That here are you know, the one of the phrases you hear very often is that there are, there are really no good guys, and um, it's presented as either a brutal regime or opposed by these hordes of jihadis. And so, when a conflict is seen that way, so people even withhold their sympathies or even their judgment. They are not willing to condemn even a brutal regime like Assad's because um, they keep saying, "The well." In fact, it's something that even people like Obama said that, well, if the regime falls, it may be taken over by uh, the jihadis. So it kind of, uh, um, that impression of the conflict succeeded in thwarting any action in support of uh, the opposition, or sometimes even something as simple as a, a no-fly zone could have made a, it could have made a huge difference. It could have saved not just tens of thousands, possibly hundreds of thousands of lives, but um, nobody was willing to do that because it was just seen as a conflict that nobody wanted to get involved in. And the confusion around it was critical to all of that. But because it was seen as this dirty war with no good sides, so because of that, people said, well, there, there was no uh, motivation to get involved. Yeah, I remember back in 2013, in the wake of the Huta massacre, there seemed to be a false binary we were presented with, either do nothing or a 2003-style invasion of Syria. Nobody was talking about a limited no-fly zone like you just described. Yeah, it was kind of a... Um, this has been one of the, re uh, the approaches to even um, discouraging criticisms of brutal regimes. You are seeing it more recently with uh, what's happening with the Uyghurs, that uh, you have some of the apologists using similar language and saying, that, well, if you're criticizing the Chinese treatment of Uyghurs, somehow you're calling for war against China, which actually I don't know anyone who's calling for war against China. Yeah. They're literally doing that. So it's just kind of a straw man. And it was done in the same in the case of Syria as well, that uh, after the a Guta massacre. Even Obama, because he was reluctant to act, so he presented it in maximalist terms. That, well, we can't have a no-fly zone because a no-fly zone will also require us to have these tens of thousands of troops on the ground and uh, all kinds of other... He kind of inflated the kind of commitment it will require. In fact, it required nothing like that. And he himself demonstrated it later when there was once a bombing of Hasaka in the north where the U.S. allies, the SDF, were based. And uh, the Obama administration issued a warning to the Syrian regime that if a plane flies over uh, this region again, that they're going to shoot it down. And no plane flew again on um, in that direction. So a no-fly zone would have been really easy to implement. But even forgetting a no-fly zone, that they didn't even have to do that. All they needed to do was minimal action to tell the regime that they meant business. So when they issued a red line, um, so there had to be some kind of a force behind it. And apparently, um, Joe Biden, who was, a, who was the vice president at the time, had told Obama um, when the del deliberations were happening that big states don't bluff. He said that if you don't kind of follow through on um, your, um, you know, the, your commitment, um, 
it's going to really encourage the regime. And that's exactly what happened, because uh, as a consequence of that retreat from the, um, from the red line, you had this massive escalation of uh, the war after this incident. And it did not require no fly zone. It could have taken, it would have required nothing more than what Trump later did. The only problem is that by the time Trump did it, the deterrence was lost. So if you do these one-off actions, so it doesn't mean anything unless you do it in such a consistent manner that the other side recognizes, okay, that we, if we take this action, I mean, it's a kind of a Pavlovian response that they need to know that if we commit a violation, then we face a threat and the correlation has to be 100%. If not, they're always going to test your limits. And before the red line was breached, they had no way of knowing how the U.S. was going to respond. If the U.S. had responded, so they would have had, okay, that's 100% already. That, you know, that they have responded, they threatened, and now they have responded. So they would not have dared take similar action again. But because there was no action in response, they escalated. They knew that there was nothing that they couldn't get away with. Because even the red line in itself, you know, by saying that, well, a war is going on in Syria, the regime is killing in all kinds of different ways, uh, mainly through um, airstrikes, but there's a red line on one type of weapon. So, which was essentially, essentially telling the regime that as long as you don't use this weapon, you can get away with anything else. So, that was clear to the regime, but the regime knew that even that sounds like a bluff, and they tested Obama's will, and they discovered that, well, um, indeed, there was no limit to what they could do. Yeah, Assad basically got the message that you can't use sarin, but chlorine is cool. Yeah, even the sarin, that he did get away with it, and uh, so he switched to chlorine because it was also um, cheaper, more convenient, less uh, complicated to to even deploy, because uh, sarin is very um, is is very dangerous, and its deployment requires uh, you know it requires a big infrastructure. It's very costly, and Syria has developed a way to use it by keeping the chemicals separate. They use this binary method in which the chemicals are kept separate until the moment of de deployment. So that's mm. that's how they. Um, avoid some of the other risks. But chlorine was simple because they were using it mainly as a terror weapon. They were using it mainly mainly to clear civilian neighborhoods. So if you go and bomb them and uh, people you know are mostly hiding from conventional weapons inside uh, basements, so you're flushing them out using chlorine. And so you don't really need sarin. Just going back to the topic of media coverage, the way that you describe the infrastructure required to properly use sarin, that right there is proof that at least the attacks that involve sarin weren't false flags, right? Well, that's kind of a, it's, it takes a massive leap of imagination to believe that people in a besieged zone would, would commit to this big industrial process to produce sarin, because sarin is a very difficult, um, it's a very difficult substance to produce. In fact, uh, Dan Cassetta has recently written a really good history of nerve agents and how they developed. And even for years, the U.S., when the U.S. was actually producing chemical weapons, even the U.S. and the U.K., for years, they struggled. For decades, they struggled to produce a safe way of uh, uh, trying to deploy sarin. And they couldn't. There were all kinds of accidents. There were all kinds of uh, ways that uh, there were leakages and they were lethal. So... It's a very difficult process, and it was, and it also takes a massive financial commitment. Uh, you know, I think it was in Aum Shinryoku, the the, the Japanese um, cult, which used it in the Tokyo Underground. Uh, so they had spent something like thirty-five million dollars uh, in order to be able to produce just a, you know, a, a, I think it was a few pounds of sarin. And in, in Huta, that was almost a ton of sarin that was used. I mean, just imagining that people under siege had that kind of industrial capacity is insane. And that's that's the impact of propaganda right there. And the willingness to believe that when, when, you, have, um, um, when you have people who are willing to believe something absurd as that. 
going back to something we talked about right before we started recording, um, what what organizations or individuals have done the best job providing accurate information about Syria since 2011? Whose work do you recommend and why? But there are some. There has been some really excellent reporting. I would begin with people like Martin Chuloff uh, of the Guardian, outstanding reporter. Um, Christoph Reuter of uh, Der Spiegel, who everything he writes about the Middle East is worth, worth reading. Uh, Janine DeGiovanni has done outstanding work, and uh, then you have people like uh, at uh, um, Washington Post. You have Liz Sly, and you have. Um, um, Louisa Lovelock, they have done um, excellent work. Even at the Telegraph, you have um, Josie Ensor, who has done some really you know, um, good reporting from there. Um, and then you have a lot of uh, Syrians in Syria who have done outstanding reporting. There were many excellent uh, sources inside Syria. Some of them eventually, as with so many Syrians, had to flee Syria. And um, they so there is outstanding reporting coming from inside Syria as well. And um, then you have uh, other organizations like uh, Bellingcat has done excellent work uh, with the open source investigations confirming the various um, control. Well, they're clarifying the various controversies because we have had this whole information war has been about, on one hand, a process of mystification where you have the propagandists trying to confuse people, and then you have you have people who do the de- demystification. And um, you know, Bellingcat has done a really good job where there have been atrocities and where people have tried to create confusion. They have done a very good job of reporting that. And the New York Times Visual Investigations Unit, uh, Malachi Brown and um, uh, his team, they have done really outstanding work on Syria. So these are... Um, you know, some of the names that come readily to mind that these people have done, these guys have done some really outstanding reporting. And then there are other people who have done, who have told parts of the story really well, like there's the BBC's uh, Mike Thompson, who, who did some, who wrote a really good book on um, this library that was created in one of the besieged zones in, in Damascus, in, in the Raya, and, uh, and how... Um, people who were homes being destroyed, so people were rescuing books, and they created one a library underground, and um, how this library survived for many years, bringing you know some degree of hope and normality to people. Eventually, it was uh, the the place was captured, and uh, the books were also then eventually either destroyed or they were sold off because they were later the books were found in the markets in Damascus. So. So you have that kind of thing, and then you have had uh, people like Rania Buzaid has written a really oh good, yeah yeah so that she's a uh, that's a very good piece of reporting, and then you have had uh, Marwan Hisham who wrote a very good book with um, uh, Molly Crabapple about um, um, life in in Raqqa under ISIS, and um, then you had at the beginning of the war, unfortunately, she also was one of those people who had to uh, flee later. You had um, Samar Yazbek. She wrote two outstanding books. The second one, The Crossing, especially, it's one of the it's a it's a must read book. It's a really powerful book um, about all that happened in Syria. So that's been the outstanding pieces of work. And even uh, yeah, initially, I mean, this is it's almost like going back to the the early history of the war. You had uh, when Paul Conroy, who was with um, Marie Corbin when when she was killed. So he has written, uh, bought a book, and which was which was later made into a really outstanding documentary called Under the Wire, and that's another one of those uh, um, books um, which I would highly recommend. And then uh, Robin Yassin Kassab and uh, Leilal Shami wrote uh, an outstanding book called Burning Country, which again, for people who are not uh, familiar with the conflict, that's something worth reading. Yasin Al-Hajj Saleh, who is one of the Syria's greatest living intellectuals, who wrote a book called The Impossible Revolution, and it's an outstanding book from a really fine thinker, like he's probably one of the Arab world's most sophisticated thinkers. So, so there have, there has been, um, there has been no dearth of reporting and good information coming out of Syria. 
we should also mention that there have been many Syrian journalists and a smaller number of Western journalists who have who have been killed in the process of covering the the, the conflict since 2011. Absolutely. There's a you have this going all the way back to 2012, early 2012, when the regime started its, its first major assault on a city. Um, in uh, this was in Homs, Baba Amr. So what happened is that um, the main thing that they were targeting. That's when they killed Marie Colvin. The main thing that they were targeting were uh, targeting were hospitals and media centers. So there were all these activist-run media centers. So they have very deliberately targeted media activists and uh, you know anybody who was doing any kind of journalism. I'm always struck when it comes to Syria by how journalists are like so deliberately targeted. Is that does it happen more frequently there than in other wars, or do we just hear about it more because of social media? No, I think social media has done a different. Uh, there's a different reason why journalists have journalism has become more risky now than it used to be. Um, you know, when I was speaking to Janine DeGiovanni recently, and she was mentioning that when they went to places like you know when they went to cover Bosnia when they were there during the siege of Sarajevo. So there were many dangers, but the danger of being kidnapped or killed was not something that they would think about. You know, that that was not the kind of danger that they would worry about because uh, every side wanted their story to be told, that they wanted journalists to tell their story. What changed with social media is that now everybody can tell their own story. And so journalists have become dispensable to them. And because of that, nobody's kind of respecting at least in dirty conflicts like these, nobody's respecting um, journalists and uh, they are being actively targeted. And um, the regime, ISIS, they have been, you know, they, they tried to kill journalists wherever they could. So it's been, um, so it is, it is kind of a new phenomenon that uh, journalism becoming, or the perception of journalists as being dispensable. Everybody has got their own narrative. In fact, journalists are now an obstacle. Is it fair to say that the the dangers that journalists face covering Syria has that had a a detrimental effect on media coverage on getting accurate information to the public? Well, of course, if um, you know, there, and the regime ensured that uh, you will not be able to get to many of these places. So, because of that, if the sources are people inside or people on the ground. So then the media can say, that, well, that's just kind of, uh, you know, people giving their biased opinion. But um, the thing is that the regime has prevented. That's one of the reasons why they killed Marie Colvin. They wanted to make an example of her because they did not want anybody to enter Syria without the regime's visa. And once you have the regime's visa, that also means then you have to be chaperoned by um, the regime's minders. So the translators they provide are the minders. And uh, what they do is that uh, uh, they just monitor, they they herd you around, they decide where you go and where you don't go. So uh, that's precisely why people like Marie Corbin did not want to want to be herded around. And um, so they took a lot of risks, like uh, they had to go through this uh, underground drainage pipe, a long, miles long uh, underground drainage pipe to be able to get to um, the besieged zone. And there they were directly targeted, you know, that they, in fact, on the, on her last day, she had to make this decision that was a fateful decision that whether to broadcast what they had seen, they had seen some really pretty horrific scenes and potentially uh, reveal their location because there were drones over overhead monitoring and surveilling. And um, so what happened is that as soon as she made the broadcast, that revealed her position to the regime and they killed her. And so, so what has happened is that um, there is... This attempt by the regime to control the narrative, and this again, like you know, obviously there's no comparison in terms of their attitudes to journalists. But um, the U.S. was doing the same thing in the, at the beginning of the Iraq War. That um, you know, they they would give the option to journalists that well, you can come with us, and then you'll be safe. You'll get a front seat kind of a view of the war. Um, but if you're not with us and you are on the other side, then you're, not, you're basically operating at your own risk. And uh, so, in fact, you know, there was a famous case where they they used a tank that shot up um, the Palestine Hotel in Baghdad 
that uh, and they knew that there were all these journalists inside. Al Jazeera, and there was also a Spanish uh, uh, journalist who was killed in a, in an attack. There were two different incidents. In one one of them was the airstrike, um, which was uh, which killed this guy called Tariq Ayub, and there was another incident as well. But uh, you know, I don't know whether that was deliberate or not, but there was certainly a disregard for the fact that well, there were journalists that was known. You know, there were these places were identified to. Um, to all the warring parties at the time, the journalists are staying at this, and that hotel was well known to be where all the journalists were staying. So um, I think that there has been a general um, tendency that um, you want to control the narrative, so the journalists can either come with you, or you know, then or otherwise you make it so dangerous for them that they do not want to go in there. What are the mistakes that journalists often make? when they try to cover Syria, especially if, if something happens over there and, the, and it ends up in the headlines again and you got broadcast news anchors talking about it, what do they typically get wrong? Well, that's kind of a... It depends on situations. It's um, um, I don't think that where wherever an incident has happened that anyone who, had, who made a good faith effort could not... Um, establish the truth. You know, it's um, there are so many ways now because uh, in the past, you know, places where you can't visit, they were black holes. But now, what has happened is that um, any incident that happens, everybody has got a phone now. So you know, there's certain to be at least a few eyewitness kind of accounts, or you you can find footage, you can find then you can reach people via Skype, you can be reach people via WhatsApp, and so um, there are many ways that you can establish what has happened. I mean, there was a famous incident that um, in in the summer of 2012, um, there was a massacre in a place uh, in the same place actually, Daraya. That there was a there was a massacre that happened there, and um, immediately afterwards, um, the initial reports were all saying that well, uh, the regime has committed a massacre. But then Robert Fisk was in. And he wrote a big story claiming that well, this wasn't a massacre; that this was a um, this was a prison swap gone bad, in which he suggested that it was the opposition that carried out the killings, and which was an interesting claim um, because you know. And now, obviously, if somebody makes a claim like that, now how can you establish the truth? So, well, as it happens, it's easy enough to establish the truth because uh, um, next thing you know. Uh, the next Human Rights Watch was already speaking to people in the on the ground, and uh, they told them what had happened. And then, interestingly, uh, Janine DeGiovanni also went in. And uh, when she went in and spoke to people, uh, she reported that, well, there had been a massacre here, and people told her, all of them, that there was uh, clearly a massacre, and this is how it happened. And she had very precise details about what kind of weapons they used, what time it started, and, um, you know, and uh, who was being targeted and well, who was involved. Now, obviously, now you're now getting these two very radically different uh, perspectives. How are you going to establish which is true or not? It's it's quite clear because, first of all, if you read the Fisk report, what you will find is Fisk describes that he went there riding a tank. So, which is okay, you know, in circumstances, some circumstances it may be un- unavoidable, but in this case, Fisk went there with a way party which was accused of carrying out the massacre. But okay, let's say that, you know, that still hasn't compromised him. So, what does he do next? He has four people he interviews in the article, and none of them say the story that he is claiming. None of them tell him that there has been a, that there was a prison swap and something went bad. And in fact, out of the four, only one of them alleges that, yeah, it was the opposition carried uh, that carried these uh, attacks out, except when he asked him, he says that I, I never saw anything. So the thing is that his, his sources are not credible. And uh, they're not even saying what he says they're saying. And thirdly, he goes there with a very party which has been accused of the attack. By contrast, Janine DiGiovanni went there undercover. Uh, he went there with a family. She went there with a family. And she spoke to survivors after all warring parties had left. So there was no fear. People could speak to her. 
and uh, the facts then and also the big difference was in the precise details of the story in Janine Dejuani's story you can she tells you that how it started what time it started you know the, how the whole thing um, sort of uh, um, it unfolded you get no such details in Robert Fisk's report and the more interesting part is then the story that Janine Dejuani told Human Rights Watch was able to corroborate with it was dozens of witnesses that they interviewed and they found exactly the same testimony consistently from independent um, individuals that they interviewed on the ground. Yeah, like people aren't going to say, you know, so-and-so committed a massacre when you show up with those same people. Yep. I, I, I saw, I remember a there was a Vice documentary that came out in 2016 where some, I can't remember, I think her name was Isabel Young. She accompanied some Syrian soldiers, you know, Syrian Arab army soldiers. And when she interviews civilians, you can see the fear in their eyes. Yeah. I must say that was actually really good because she actually makes it very clear. Yeah. That she makes it very clear these people can speak freely. And in fact, one of the best parts of that documentary was that when she's invited to go on the regime TV by the regime TV on their show and they thought that they were going to milk her for some kind of propaganda and in fact she turns the table on them and um, and they then are completely unable to speak so I think she did a good job and because she was she said that these people can't speak freely and she explains exactly why and I think that that was the part that I liked because she was very clear about uh, you know that uh, what the circumstances here are like so, so far we've talked about the good and the not so good. Now we get on to the outright bad actors. Who who has poisoned the well the most, in your opinion, when it comes to Syria and, and misinformation among the public? Well, I would say that, um, um, you know, there are some who are obviously propagandistic, you uh, you have the gray zone types and these type of figures who are so obviously propagandistic that uh, they have an audience, but their propaganda resonates just with that audience. To me, the more dangerous ones were people like Fisk and uh, people like Patrick Coburn because they pretend to objectivity. And, um, and it was kind of, I had a bit of a, um, Tiff with um, um, Patrick Coburn because I wrote a review of his book and uh, then I wrote a piece for the Daily Beast in which I pointed out that how he very systematically ignored regime atrocities and uh, to the extent that he would mention them, he would mention them as kind of a throat clearing. That well, something bad has happened here, but let me tell you what is really horrible and which is all these opposition people. And that used to be the kind of our tone of all his stories. And um, he kind of pretended to objectivity, and he's very influential. I mean, you'll be surprised by, and he was winning the British Foreign Correspondent of the Year Award. He was even winning the Orwell Award, which was kind of ironic because um, the, uh, Patrick Coburn's father, Claude Coburn, was somebody Orwell detested because uh, he was a, a Stalinist and actually used to work for the agit prop. Wow. <laughs> so... So the, the, so the thing was that, uh, which was kind of ironic uh, because the Coburn family is not very fond of Orwell for that reason. But um, he's influential and a lot of people read him and then he even gets to advise governments that uh, here you had both the conservative government and also the opposition party turning to him for advice. And his advice was quite interesting that, uh, in fact, he wrote about it. So when I had negatively reviewed his book so he he got really upset and um, there's actually an exchange you can find on um, the Daily Beast website he accuses me of being just a partisan but the interesting thing is that uh, well obviously I would never not claim that I'm a partisan I'm, I'm totally against Assad and I've never concealed that fact and um, um, and I think as any decent person should that they, they, we are talking about a mass murdering dictatorship but the thing is that uh, he claimed that he is just an objective reporter telling the truth and he's just being attacked because I don't like his truth, he said. Well, the, so what did he do when he was invited to advise the government? You can find it on the Middle East Eyes website because he gave an interview afterwards and he said that he advised the government and he advised the Labour Party 
that uh, Britain should militarily support Assad to fight jihadis in Syria. Oh, my and, God. Uh, so, so the thing was that, um, and he was using ISIS as kind of like the, the excuse for all of that. The thing about ISIS was that it was very clear from the beginning that um, ISIS was a phenomenon which was not going to last. I mean, the entire world was united against them. And, uh, you know, for good reason. And the thing was, it was never going to last. They just didn't have, you know, it's not a, um, it's not a force that had, they don't have an air force. They don't have any kind of, um, um, you know, that, that kind of supply chains, which was going to sustain them over a longer period of time. So they were, they were going to be destroyed and which they were. Yeah. He, he tried to inflate the threat of ISIS, uh, or inflate it as being of equal, um, significance as the regime and which it wasn't because in in syria you know, more than 90 percent of the civilian deaths were occurring at the hands of the regime and uh, its allies the russians and you know the, the militias that support it and hezbollah so in syria you know it, the number of deaths isis obviously did uh, horrific things uh, but the numbers were in the single digits you know percentages percentage wise so for Syria, that was very odd advice to for Britain to ally itself with the main destructive force. So, and then it's fine if you want to be a um, you know partisan for the regime, but at least admit it. And but the problem was he is perceived, and he he is perceived as such because he's unlike even Fisk. He's a bit more clever. He doesn't write outright, you know. Uh, Propaganda. He always disguises it as instead of um, um, supporting the regime, he always disguises it as um, um, all his criticisms of the of um, uh, um, of the opposition's shortcomings. And he wrote a piece for the London Review of Books. He says that the media is all misleading you on on Syria. Now, if you said to me, "Is the media misleading you on Syria?" I would say, "Yes, I think so." And uh, you know. Not broadly, but certainly, you know, in many respects it has. But the thing is that he, what he was saying was something completely different. What he said was that, look, um, um, what the media is doing is it's paying no attention to what's happening in Mosul. It's paying no attention to ISIS and it's totally obsessed with um, the regime. And he says that even though the regime, um, and, and then he erects this straw man that he says that people are comparing Aleppo to Srebrenica and, uh, but even though Srebrenica was a, uh, a genocide and here, um, you know, the regime is uh, doing nothing like that. And then he claimed that then it's opposed by Al Qaeda mainly and all the information that is coming out of Aleppo is coming through Al Qaeda and which is again was completely false. Because in Aleppo, you could reach people through via Skype, via WhatsApp, and all without any filtering by anybody else. So they had internet, right? Oh, of course, yeah, yeah. So there was a, a you know satellite and all that. And in fact, again, there was a well, it it was very interesting because there was this incident that there used to be this seven-year-old girl called Banal Abid. Yeah. That, uh, and she became the center, the focus of this big propaganda war. And one of the claims that was made against her that how could she be treating from this besieged zone? How right. could she be finding finding internet? And then Bellingcat did a really good investigation in which they even listed all the um, internet networks that were available in um, uh, in Aleppo at the time, because there was satellite phones and there were other ways that in which the um, you know internet was active inside the besieged zone. So. So she did she never have any connections to like I remember there were allegations she was backed by the Turkish government there were there were rumors that her mom was part of a part of one of the armed opposition groups what what was the real story behind that Yeah no neither not uh, they were not part of any Turkish operation and no they they didn't have links to any um organization what happened is that uh, her mother is a school teacher um, and um, they they took a, I think it was a, at the time you know even though some some among my friends were not sure that whether it's a kind of a risk worth taking because we expected the place to fall and they could have been arrested 
And the thing was, it was a big risk for them to have their daughter, uh, you know, on social media speaking about the oppression there. Yeah. But it's a gamble because it was a way of a, a plea to the world. And I think that in this instance, at least, that gamble was successful because, yes, indeed, because of that, those social media posts, you know, she started getting attention. And in the end, in fact, that's one of the reasons why they got asylum because, you know, they um, the her broadcasts from inside were were so kind of um, um, they were written about or they were they were shared around the world, and so because of that, it made it easier for them to receive asylum later on in Turkey. And I think that the the whole um, conspiracy theories only started as a conspiracy theories always start off at the end, and then they try to find causation in the past. So because they got the asylum afterwards, so they somehow. The suggestion was that they must have been working for the Turkish government all the time. And even there, there's this assumption that somehow Turkish government is so uh, devoted to the Syrian opposition that it's going to go through the length of this kind of a PR operation. Yeah. I mean, at the very least, they they may have just had an opportunity fall into their lap and they realize, hey, if we rescue this girl, it's going to make us look really, really good. Oh, yeah. So Turkey has done that with a lot of high-profile individuals like people who were you know because it's kind of a for them it's successful pr that uh, even when you are mistreating a whole lot of people like uh, you know but what you can do is that have pick up and treat some high profile individuals nicely they did later with the, these two other uh, little children who were broadcasting out of um, um, eastern kuta that you had uh, their noor and allah these are these little girls that uh, they too were doing the same thing that they were broadcasting out of uh, Eastern Ghouta, and uh, when Eastern Ghouta fell, uh, they got asylum. And the uh, same thing happened with Muhammad Najm, even though in his case it took almost a year before he was in the camps, for a year before he received asylum, and um, you know he was able to leave for Turkey. So yes, Turkey has helped people who are high profile. It works for them, it appears. Um, and I would say that um, in contrast to other countries, as for as far as the refugees are concerned, you know, Turkey has certainly um, has shown greater generosity than most other countries. Yeah. And, and the fact that, like, some countries like uh, Turkey or Qatar or Saudi Arabia, perhaps, that, because there has been some propag- there has been some anti-Assad propaganda, that doesn't disprove that he's committed the bulk of the war crimes in the conflict. Yeah. It's a, um, and the thing was that actually, uh, interestingly with Turkey, um, before the war started, at the beginning of the war, uh, Erdogan had very close and good relations with, uh, with Assad. And, um, they were in fact, uh, he was even trying to facilitate a new peace agreement between Assad and, and Israelis. So it was only after the war started that eventually when their relationship sour, soured, so Turkey turned against um, Assad, and at the beginning, Turkey became sort of like the conduit through which uh, all the opposition was um, organizing, and that's one of the dangerous consequences of that was that a lot of people, because the borders were so porous at the time, which helped refugees get out, but it also meant that, that through those porous borders, a lot of uh, foreign fighters and people like that could get in. And that's how a lot of these people claiming to be volunteers came from outside and then went and some many of them ended up joining ISIS. It's it's a kind of a mixed story. It's still kind of a it's not exactly a straightforward story. And but yeah, the Gulf states were probably only Qatar you can say was more had a sustained commitment to the overthrow of Assad. Uh, the rest they made a kind of um, Saudi Arabia's main worry was that it did not want to see Muslim Brotherhood succeed in Syria. And so because of that, they were supporting FSA factions because they wanted FSA to be... So this was another one because, uh, you know, they always claim about this somehow Saudi Arabia was supporting uh, ISIS or Nusra. Actually, Saudi Arabia fears both of them because both of them actually are committed to overthrowing the Saudi regime as well. So Saudis actually wanted to um, support groups which were not affiliated with the hardliners and uh, and that again not because it wasn't uh, 
ideologically, it wasn't an ideological question. It was more a question of uh, the uh, the Saudis' own survival instincts. So they did not want to support any faction which they thought could pose a potential threat to them in the future. Some old school real politique. Yes, absolutely. I mean, it's the kind of the same logic where by which um, it's a, this is one of the reasons why the Gulf states are now um, changing their tunes on Syria. And in fact, uh, UAE is now actively lobbying to normalize the Syrian regime um, because UAE and Saudi Arabia are they are really obsessed with the Muslim Brotherhood. They fear the Muslim Brotherhood. And um, and there there's a good reason for that as well, because the Muslim Brotherhood used to have a really um, vast network across across the region that they, they were very kind of well organized. And um, and so Saudis feared that this kind of a, um, opposition could come to power. And that's why when Muslim Brotherhood did come to power in, in Egypt, so they basically gave Sisi all the support he needed to overthrow this regime. Wow. As we approach the end, I wanted to ask you, um, who are the outlets and individuals that people should avoid when they first uh, start learning about Syria? Like, if hypothetically, somebody who doesn't know anything about the conflict, um, what should they stay away from? What or who? I sh- sorry. Yeah, I think uh, probably I'll start with the journalists. Well, I don't think that uh, if you want to learn about Syria... Avoid Patrick Coburn, avoid Robert Fisk, and um, Patrick Coburn's book at one point was pretty kind of a, it was a bestseller because um, it's kind of an easy book to read, that um, it's polemical and it sim- oversimplifies things, so it became a bestseller at one point, and um, um, that's the kind of thing that you want to avoid, and because there are many great Syrian voices, so go directly to them. There are great writers and great analysts, and uh, then there are great journalists uh, who are reporting on, on, con- on the conflict. The second thing is um, um, you have these quote-unquote alternative sites. You have things like the gray zones and uh, the counter punches or the alternates and these kinds of places. They've been mostly a source of what uh, they disseminate misinformation. So avoid those um, and generally also you know I used to be a big proponent of independent media but one of the things I've uh, realized over the years is that um, um, journalism takes a lot of commitment it also takes resources and um, it's not an easy task for somebody to go to a place like Syria to be able to report and to then be able to pay your translators or um, you know or even to be able to secure interviews and all that. It takes a big effort. And the people who do that respect them. Instead of going to somebody who has got opinions about Syria, you know, just because they know that I I know what happened in Iraq and that's why I can tell you what's happening in Syria even though I don't need to know any any Syrian or I don't need to even have read a book. You know, there was recently, uh, this was one of the ironies that um, I mentioned before, the ones... Um, there, so there's a group in, in the UK of these professors who set up something called their working group on Syria media or whatever it had this name. And uh, it had even the endorsement of Noam Chomsky. Now, they started in the seventh year of the war. They suddenly started taking interest in the war and, and they came up with all kinds of conspiracy theories. Which again, you know, people at any point in their life should be, you know, free to take interest in any subject they want. But the thing is that you need to earn that authority, that if you want to pronounce on a conflict, well, you need to have, be able to show how do you know, how do you know anything that you know? You know, you know, what is your expertise here? How much time have you invested in understanding? Have you spoken to any people who are on the ground or any people who are knowledgeable about the conflict? If you haven't done that, so maybe withhold your opinion. But so I had this debate with some of these people. So I asked them at one point because they didn't sound particularly informed to me. So I had a suspicion. So I asked them that, okay, you know, you're, I have been like uh, covering this conflict for quite some time. I have 
also reviewed at least 10 or 15 of the books that were written about Syria. So I asked that, uh, can you suggest to me some books that you think are good, that, that have shaped your perspective on Syria, because your perspective seems very different than mine. Can you recommend a few books that you think are really good? And uh, they kept on sort of avoiding that question. So I get started getting more suspicious. At the end, I asked, and they said, well, turned out they haven't read a single book. So there's a group of academics who have not read a single book on a subject, but they want to be able to pronounce on it. And the best part of it was one of the responses at the end came, one of them said to me that, well, you seem to have a very outmoded view of uh, the world where you think reading books is necessary to understand, you know, a conflict. What? And so, yeah, so I was just, uh, you know, <laughs> I was gobsmacked by that. But the thing also is that I also realized that what social media has done to people that, you know, that here you don't have to have any kind of authority as long as you have the right point of view that you are selling the correct kind of a, the line on on an issue. So, you know, as long as you're, you have the, the correct party line, it doesn't matter whether you know anything about the subject or not. And that's how people like Vanessa Bealey and Eva Bartlett get a platform. They get a platform and then even their self-identity is never queried when they claim that they are independent journalists. So, and they even they are presented as such like by their supporters. And then you have to ask, what does independence mean? I mean, they go there at the regime's uh, invitation. They're even brought in by the, so the regime is there also their PR. So when there are foreign visitors to Syria, so the regime organizes uh, for all the foreign visitors meetings with Vanessa Bili. You know, so uh, you get as part of your foreign tour, one of the features um um, is a stop at Vanessa Bealey's that she's going to then tell you, you know, for what's happening over here. And uh, she gets chaperoned to all the places which have recently fallen, and uh, then she writes about them. And in one case, she even did a video interview with a, a captured White Helmets volunteer, and clearly an interview under duress, which even uh, Twitter and YouTube eventually took down because of that. So you have a clear propagandist or a regime affiliated with the regime at the touring Syria at the mercy of the regime in the company of regime soldiers, but yet, you know, for um, her audience, she is quote-unquote independent. So I think that that's, that's the thing that becomes quite interesting, that the words seem to have lost their meaning. But people are looking for affirmation. They're not looking for information. Yeah. So, like, what's, um, to the extent you could say, what's the relationship between online grifters, for lack of a better word, and um, state-sponsored propaganda outlets like RT, for example? Well, I think that now <clears throat> the relationship has been evolving. In the beginning, um, you know, they used to be directly um, employed by them that many of these people were directly employed, but some of them still are. People like Rania Khalik is employed by the uh, you know, Russia Today, or its subsidiary, because they now create all these front groups. So they've now created a podcast called Left Bitches. If you look it up right now, they are saying how um, dictators are being maligned. Literally, this is the last show, saying wow. that, the, that dictators are being dehumanized. I think that was the exact word that was used. And um, Isn't that a good thing? <laughs> yeah, so the other thing is that uh, so they also had something called Soapbox, and so they're all fronts for Russia today. So some of them are directly employed by them, but then there are others uh, who are, what they realize over time is that it's far more useful for people to not be um, directly employed by them, that they can, um, it's, for them, it works better if these people have a perception of being independent and then they get, they publish their pro regime material and then the regime media amplifies it. So now you have all these figures, some of them actually used to work for RT, so they've established these. So some of them are now working with um, Gray Zone, some of them with Mint Press and all these kinds of dubious places. 
they write reports, they write pieces, and then they these pieces then get amplified by Russia Today. Yeah, Mint Press is its own can of worms. Yeah. I'm, I might actually just do a whole bonus episode on them one day. Uh, yes, it's worthwhile because they have a very interesting history that um, there's a lot to dig into there. Yeah. I mean, the, the list of different, like, individuals and outlets who have just put out outright propaganda, it's even, like, probably too long to list in a single episode. It'd have to be, it'd have to be a multi-part series. But let's just, Absolutely. let's focus on, like, the most egregious zone, the Gray Zone. That was founded by a guy named Max Blumenthal. Now, yeah. you and he kind of had, like, a public feud, I guess would be the word for it. Yeah, I think he's a... Um... He, I used to know him, well, not directly, but virtually. I used to know him, and, uh, you know, I used to even support his work. And, uh, um, wow. In fact, I, I had a kind of, uh, um, it was partly in response to my prodding that he had that he had resigned from this pro Hezbollah newspaper that he was part of. And uh, he did some, at the beginning, some really good reporting that he even went to these refugee camps in, in Jordan and told basically the truth about, uh, you know, how people felt there. But then later on, he had a very, um, like, uh, this very public U-turn that he visited Russia uh, at the 10th anniversary of, um, he was invited there for the 10th anniversary of Russia today. And um, he... When he came back, he had this U-turn, and he then um, uh, he was kind of a, um, a a mutual friend. Then told me that he has been harassing the um, people at the Syria campaign and and the white helmets and appearing at their events and uh, you know asking stupid questions. And um, so I was just kind of surprised because you know I thought that okay he he. He may be a grifter, but he can't be this obvious. But then he publishes this two-part attack on the White Helmets. And uh, it's not just that, you know, the thing was full of disinformation and full of just absolute uh, stupid claims. But it was also just how shoddy it was. It was just so um, illiterate. The guy starts off by, he wants to suggest a big conspiracy theory. So he started off by suggesting that, look, that even the motto has been borrowed from the uh, Spielberg film, Schindler's List. The motto is uh, to save one life is to save um, all humanity. Um, so I didn't even remember that line in, in Spielberg's film, but turns out, well, that's actually a line, White almost took it from the Quran, because that's actually a, a verse in the Quran. But what happens is that apparently that's also a verse in the Torah. So um, it's cited that verse from the Torah is also cited in um, the film Spielberg, uh, in Spielberg's film. So, but the thing is that obviously there was an obvious source here, and you could have just asked the White Helmets because it's clear on their website as well that it's taken from the Quran. But he wanted to suggest even in the title, in the, their kind of motto that look, you know, they, this is some kind of a Spielbergian propaganda operation. And um, and then from there it goes with all kinds of uh, innuendo and um, six degree degrees of separation kind of um, you know, guilt by association. So it's it's full of just nonsense and propaganda. And uh, yeah, I mean after that I just called him out and I've I've just treated him with contempt ever since because uh, I do think you know how much how contemptible does one have to be to to do something like that because. Even if you read his resignation letter from Al-Akhbar, it's very clear he knows exactly what he's doing because back then he had denounced exactly these types of actions. You know, it's a clear grift. He knows it's a grift because he has written about it. So, yes, it's... Uh, and then it became... Gray Zone then became a kind of a holding pen for all these failures from journalism you had that other guy benjamin norton who's a clownish figure i mean but then you had this other person. <laughs> oh yeah um you had uh, this other guy um aaron mate that who used to be at a semi-respectable place like uh, uh democracy now from there he failed downwards to um real news from there as well he failed to and then he ends up at uh, as max blumenthal's personal kind of uh 
um, sidekick you know, propagandist. Yeah. Yeah. Our, our, they've, they've made some very personal attacks against you. I've, I've seen them say some pretty horrendous stuff. Oh yeah. Yeah. I mean, they, they, they've been at it for more than four years, five years now. And, um, and the thing is that sometimes it's kind of, a um, it's the kind of thing that you, you even stop bothering with because, you know, when you look at it, if these are my enemies, so, you know, I'm fine. <laughs> I'm, I'm completely untroubled by that. And, um, I think that I will be more, to me, it will be more troubling if I was in their good books. You know, you look at their actions and, uh, you look at where their sympathies lie. I mean, imagine looking at a conflict where you have seen five or so, well, not five, you're talking about now 10 years of continuous assaults on schools, refugee camps, hospitals, and then to come out not on the side of the victims, on the side of the people who are afflicted, but to stand with the murderers. I mean, you know, I am, I'm kind of a, they're too insignificant for me to even sort of say that they give me any pride to be in their good, good uh, in the bad books. But yeah, I'm very happy that I'm in their bad books. I can't remember. Was it Churchill or somebody else who said you can tell a lot about someone from who their enemies are? Absolutely. Yeah. So finally, one last uh, question which I ask right now as my laptop battery is nearing uh, its end. Um, how does one combat all the propaganda that's been spread about Syria? How does one fight back against the widespread disinformation? Well, I think it's... Um, um, it, that's unfortunately not a straightforward question. It's just by, yes, by one, being more careful in one's um, uh, consumption of news, like uh, what kind of sources you turn to. And um, the second thing is also some tendencies to recognize within ourselves. Like, you know, because uh, none of us is free from this tendency to to be more receptive to information that confirms our existing worldview. So... I think that we need to just be clear about some things that, well, if you say that you know, torture is wrong, so then you can't make exceptions for it, regardless of what kind of a political cause it is in the service of. And the same thing is um, um, true of things like uh, um, collective punishment. That you can't say that, you know, if you see that, if you see in Gaza and you say that this is a crime, that you can't say that it's not a crime anymore because there's some political justification for it when it happens in Yermuk. So you, there needs to be consistency. And um, I think that if you adopt an ethically consistent point of view, so that can also inform your um, ability to discriminate what kind of reporting is good and what isn't. Any reporting then that tries to rationalize such things. I mean, now we'll be seeing a lot of that with, with China. Any reporting that tries to rationalize it, or what about it, you know, the what about read to deflect attention from it. So that is the kind of reporting you have to be suspicious of. Dr. Idris Ahmad, thank you so much for joining us today. We really appreciate your time and the knowledge you brought to us. Thanks a lot, it was a pleasure. Thank you for listening to What Happened to Syria. This was our second episode, The Good, the Bad, and the Propaganda. Follow us on Twitter, at SyriaPod, so you can stay up to date with future episodes. You can email us at whathappentosyriapodcast at gmail.com. We encourage anyone to reach out to us if you think we got a detail wrong or if you have information relevant to the topics we discuss. If you are Syrian, part of the Syrian diaspora, or have otherwise been personally affected by events in Syria since 2011, please reach out to us. We'd love to have you on the show. 
If you like what you heard and want to support future episodes, please consider supporting us on Patreon. Go to patreon.com slash what happened to Syria to access bonus episodes for just $3 a month and join our Discord server for just $5. You can also get fan requested content and a shout out in each episode when you join as a VIP patron for $20. Shout out to our first patron, Jaeger de Pato. We'll have more names to mention in this segment very soon. Thank you to all of our listeners. I'm Sean Hastings, the creator and host of What Happened to Syria. We'll see you next week.